Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Carolina Weather Group. Uh, it's already been one of those uh, those those Google Hangout issue things. So sorry for the uh, long delay. It's a little bit past eight o'clock. Uh, so if you're watching live, I apologize for us uh, coming on a little late. Trying to get one of our guests, um, the firewalls and all that, to work out. So hopefully we can uh, work through those technical difficulties here in the next little bit. But uh, you are watching the Carolina Weather Group, the February first edition. Uh, hard to believe. We're already in the second month of the year, so uh, it's very warm around the Carolinas and throughout the southeast, so we'll talk about that in just a second, but I do want to uh, talk about uh, if you're watching tonight and you have any questions uh, for our guests, please feel free to uh, tweet them to us at Carolina Weather Group, or you could uh, use the Facebook option and send us a comment via that, uh, that social media account, and we'll make sure to give them to our guests. And then as we wrap up the show tonight, we'll let our guests give out their social media contacts. Uh, that way, if you have any questions, if you're listening on the podcast, you can direct them uh, to to those guys. So uh, we appreciate uh, everyone joining us tonight. This is going to be an interesting topic. It kind of talking about just how our weather works in general. You know, when we forecast, we normally say within three days is pretty accurate. But after you get after that, it's kind of uh, a crapshoot at times. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about the the long, long range of that and looking two to three weeks out in advance. So uh, we're very uh, fortunate to have uh, Joseph and Anthony on with us tonight, and hopefully we can get Anthony uh, Anthony's issues worked out so he can join us um, here in just a little bit. So uh, short, we'll keep it short since uh, we're running behind, but uh, here in the Western Carolinas, it's been warm another day in the 70s. I think this makes day number five or six uh, over uh, January and now February. Uh, do want to mention the uh, interesting note of uh, – even though we've had rainfall over four inches in, in uh, January, still dealing with some wildfire issues here in Western North Carolina. And um, we have the uh, Sugar uh, Cove fire in McDowell County, 220 acres at only 15% containment. And uh, I can tell you, it's really smoky around here um, at times, uh, as well as some prescribed burns as well here in the Western Carolinas. So uh, even though uh, we dealt with wildfires a couple months back, uh, we had some rain and we're still dealing with them. So, uh, we'll be uh, very thankful when wildfire season is finally finished. And um, there's a gusty winds, and this is where I'm going to bring in our wind forecaster, Shay. Uh, those gusty winds have really been uh, fueling the fire here. And it seems like, uh, I know for us in western North Carolina and, and the central part of the state, the, the winds have really been gusty the past week, week and a half. So uh, those are really helping fuel the, the flames there uh, here in western Car North Carolina. So with that, I'm going to throw it over to uh, number nine. Yesterday in the country, Shay Gibson with some kiteboarding. He made the top 10. So, Shay, uh, I guess you had a little bit of a, a windy uh, day yesterday to, uh, to accomplish that feat. Yeah, well, yeah well, our sea breezes came up here in Charleston. Surprisingly, I can't believe I'm really talking about moderate to strong sea breezes at the end of January and early February. And even though our water temperatures are still cool around 56, 57 degrees, the uh, air temperatures being kind of close to that yesterday really brought on some wind. In fact, I'll go ahead and uh, do a share screen on this and see if I can bring it up. The, uh, the number nine was on, it's what's called Woo, and that's a device that measures how high you jump. So uh, on the kite board, I mean, let me know if you can see the screen. Yeah, we can we, see it. You can see it, okay. Um, yeah, it just, it, it measures how high you jump on a kite board, you know, and, and you can go pretty high up. I only got about 7.8 meters, I think. Uh, it was enough to put me number nine, but it's all fun. There was someone else, I think they hit 12.5 meters up in uh, southeast North Carolina. This is a map of Charleston. 
And we still have the southwest flow going on from the high pressure, the same high pressure, Scotty, that brought you some of that gusty wind that slid over from the west when it crossed and dropped down across Florida and became more of a Bahamian high uh, and sort of a Bermuda high. And it's really just, it's really much like a summer setup. And today, even right now, we still have 12 to 15 knots at Fort Sumter in, in Charleston. Uh, yesterday, if we go back in the archives, I'll take a look at yesterday's when you can see we got up to 30 knots in gusts uh, right around a little after three o'clock p.m. So the winds really came up in the morning, just like a sea breeze would. And then they came down as the air temperatures cooled later in the day. Even the beach is filled in. And usually this time of the year, you see marine layering, just shallow or subtle marine layering that keeps these numbers down. Today, it did stay down. But yesterday, we saw pretty much close to, you know, upper teens to near 20 knots, some low 20s in gusts here. A little bit stronger to the north of the harbor at Sullivan's Island, Isle of Palms. But you can kind of see the last day or two has been a healthy sea breeze day. And it's just, it's really, like I said, really surprising to see that kind of activity this time of the year. We just hit our fourth uh, highest temperatures in January since 1938. Uh, today's temperature was 74. We're expecting that again tomorrow. So just really unseasonably warm here. And I don't think, I can't really see in the long run. We have a couple of days this weekend. It's going to drop down pretty chilly. Then we warm up again. So a little bit of a roller coaster ride, but it's almost like springs around the corner already. I know it's a little early to say that, but we're, we're feeling that warm weather just like you are. Well, we do know tomorrow Puck's Tawny Phil will be out to give his uh, most accurate forecast, so we'll have to see what he says. <laughs> just joking, just joking. Uh, let's throw it up to uh, Ricky Matthews, who is in uh, East Tennessee. Ricky, how's the weather up that way? We're doing all right. We've had some wild temperature swings. We went from uh, 30s to 60s to I think we actually hit 62 yesterday, uh, and then we were expecting more days at 30s and 40s, and we're going to probably hit near 70 coming up next week, so... It is an up and down roller coaster that never seems to end in our area. That is true, and um, looking, and we'll get to our topic here in just a second. Kind of connecting with uh, what we're talking about. Does look like we may uh, have an encounter with maybe another round of severe weather sometime next week as well. Severe weather, maybe a little bit of ice in east of uh, the mountains, and then we talk about you know whenever it gets to like seventy degrees in February, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> that probably means you're going to be dealing with a few severe thunderstorms uh, before it's all said and done with, Scotty. That is true. So uh, I'll uh, let's see if we have Anthony on. Anthony, uh, let's see. Test one. Hello. Yes, we yes. got you. We got the audio. All right. I'm on yeah. through my phone. Awesome. Well. Hey, Doc. Hey, Joe. I'm glad we finally got you through. So I'm going to toss it to Ricky, and we'll, uh, we'll start the interview. Before we do that, I do want to mention um, – uh, our thoughts are with James uh, Brierton as he's not on the show tonight. He uh, had a death uh, in the family back in New York. So um, if you are, uh, if you will, just send your thoughts and prayers to he and his family as uh, they're dealing with that. And hopefully James will be back with us next week. And then David and Peter are off tonight. So uh, with that, Ricky, I'll toss it to you and we'll start the show. All righty. Very good. It's uh, an interesting show topic, as you mentioned tonight, something I don't have a lot of experience in, but I I'm really excited to learn a little bit about and then perhaps use it in uh, some of my forecasting, we're talking about long range weather forecasting and how you can use what happens in the Pacific Ocean to correlate to what the weather may do in the United States. So we have two experts in the field tonight, Joseph and uh, Tony, we're glad you can join us tonight and uh, talk a little bit about this. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. I'm to finally here. glad to get through. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, you're not the only guest we've ever had who, uh, has had some internet issues. But first off, give us a little bit of background information on both of you. Uh, 
Tony, you can you can go first if you'd like, and uh, tell us a little bit about about you, what your research is, and why you're so interested in this topic. Well, I'm a, I've been a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Missouri for going on 20 years now. It'll be 20 years in August. And my primary areas of research are jet stream dynamics, uh, a phenomenon called blocking, and uh, climate, climate variability. And the interest in this, of course, dovetails with, uh, with what Joe has been interested in because all of this is going to be uh, in that area of jet stream dynamics. It's going to be through the jet stream that these weather phenomenon or that the weather in uh, the Pacific will connect with what's going on in North America. Okay, Joe, how about you? What's uh, your background in history? Yeah, um, I've been um, <clears throat> super moderator with AccuWeather.com's forums since 2008 and been a very integral part of uh, that forum self-taught for years especially ever since you know everything became uh, available freely over the internet and in 2011 while researching the LRC I noticed that the weather in the Bering Sea three weeks later teleconnected to a general pattern in the United States that mimicked it pretty closely. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, but you know we could still roughly do very well in pattern recognition technique with it. And um, been utilizing that, like I said, since 2011. Um, I've presented to the American Meteorological Society's uh, annual meeting in New Orleans and also the 39th and 40th uh, Climate Prediction Center Diagnostic Workshops in St. Louis and Denver, re respectively, as I was discussing before we went live. And I've also the Weather Association's annual meeting in Norfolk. And then on the side, Dr. Lupo presented our poster in the AMS just held in Seattle. So, so you guys have, you know, dabbled in this for a while. How big is the research community for this kind of teleconnection stuff? And specifically, the two things we're going to talk about, the Bering Sea Rule and, and what used to be known as the Typhoon Rule, but now you guys have renamed it the East Asia Rule? Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> we did some pretty thorough searching. When I approached Dr. Lupo back in 2013, um, I told him, you know, I need some academia support. I want to do a research paper uh, based on what I found. And we did some pretty extensive research of our own to make sure that there wasn't any more any research papers out on the same phenomenon. And we didn't find anything. Uh, you can find a ton of information on what it's related to in the sense of Rosby waves and teleconnection forecasting. But those are generally focused on the North Atlantic Oscillation, the Pacific North American Oscillation, East Pacific Oscillation, and of course the West Pacific Oscillation. We can go on and on about the, I think uh, CPC's got 10, I think, off the top of my head that they use. But 
specifically as they relate to the Bering Sea and East Asia, we did not find any AMS papers or uh, along those lines associated with uh, what used to be called the typhoon rule and also what I found in the Bering Sea rule. Yeah, let, let me add that uh, meteorologists have noticed a connection between Pacific area weather and our weather ever since uh, upper air uh, measurements have been taken or about since 1940. And the research community in this area is pretty small. Uh, folks have looked at things called teleconnections, which the, the Pacific North America pattern is part of. And the Bering Sea Rule is actually part of the uh, Pacific North America teleconnection, but looks at slightly different areas. And so it, there is some research in the area, but not a lot. And there's, as Joe said, there's nothing in particular on the Bering Sea or Typhoon Rule, both of which have been used colloquially for a while. But Joe's put some... Uh, put some numbers to it. Quick question. Um, just kind of going out on a little bit on a tangent here. Uh, the upper soundings from the 40s and the 50s, was that correlated with the Air Force and some of the nuclear bomb fallout testing that they did, or were they already studying the ozone layer at that point? Um, no, they, um, they started launching balloons uh, in the 1930s, and I would imagine that uh, the Air Force in the Pacific was heavily involved in that, uh, just to monitor uh, upper air uh, patterns. Uh, looking at things like nuclear fallout, and that was a was a side issue. And at the time, it was considered the Army Air Corps also uh, before 1946 when it got in integrated into the United States Air Force. So tell our followers, what exactly is the East Asia Rule? Uh, as I stated earlier, the East Asia Rule, um, we renamed it from the Typhoon Rule because a lot of misconception when it comes to people trying to use the teleconnection of East Asia to the Eastern United States, which is <clears throat> the weather in the East Asia teleconnects to the Eastern United States six to 10 days later. And we found that a lot of people, if they didn't see a typhoon during the typhoon season form, they didn't talk about it. And, you know, if you're looking at a 500 millibar map, whether or not there's a typhoon does not matter. You still have the trough, you still have the ridge, and that, in essence, uh, dictates whether the typhoon hits China or if it recurves away from Japan. And so to get away from that eye candy, as I always used to call it, of the typhoon, uh, we renamed it the East Asia Rule to have a broad regional perspective. That's, that's very good, Joe. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, a typhoon doesn't necessarily have to be present, but, one, but when one is, it, cannot, it can have a huge impact via the jet stream 
a good example of that was Typhoon Nuri in November 2014, a very strong typhoon that uh, became extratropical and was one of the deepest lows on record in the Pacific. And that encouraged ridging ahead of it. And of course, that ridging in the Alaska region contributed to strong troughing over North America, which meant a very cold November 2014. And might I add, our one of our number one case studies in our uh, case studies two paper from the 40th CPCDW. Oh, sorry, I didn't know if uh, Shay had a question there or, or I was taking it back over. All right, so let's um, let's dabble a little bit more into this Eastern Sea Rule. Um, you mentioned specifically how it kind of correlates to weather in the central United States. Can you sh show us like why some places were picked and then maybe Shay can bring up those maps too. We can kind of talk a little bit about those that you have on your website. Yeah, uh, what we did is we ran um, correlation points and over the years, in the same um, mindset that we did for the Bering Sea Rule. Over the years, we watched the pattern as it dictated in East Asia and how it correlated to the United States. So we developed a, a correlation point of Nashville, Tennessee to Seoul, South Korea. And the one of the main things about the adage for the typhoon rule was if a typhoon recurved away from Japan, that meant that the trough in East Asia prior, you know, would be r roughly Sea of Japan or over the Korean Peninsula and Manchuria. And so we drew, used the truesides.com um, website, which takes any area of the world and you can actually drag that map like say you know uh, picking the united states uh you can drag the representation of it over to any part of the world and so we base that on our um east asia rule and put the eastern united states the east coast as close to or on top of Japan as possible. And then we ran some correlation statistics through Josh Herman on the Seoul and Nashville uh, correlation. So when we're looking yeah. at for, sorry, go ahead, Tony. Yeah, Joe, Joe did a great job, Joe and Josh Herman did a great job with this. They correlated data from actual radio sonda observations from observation stations rather than just doing gridded data which is typically what's done for correlation or for teleconnection analysis so yeah they did a good job with that okay so when we talk about relating are we relating overall flow? Are we relating 500 millibars? What are we relating specifically from one city to the other? Well, what we found is uh, it's both, uh, both surface and, uh, and 
when I say surface, I don't mean a, again, a, it is not a one-to-one -one correlation of surface pressure of a system in East Asia to a surface pressure system over the continental United States. That's exactly right, Joe. You're, you're looking at but pressure. But of our uh, jet stream uh, yep. flow. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're looking at pressure, which is going to tell you something about the uh, the jet stream flow and the pattern and the uh, location of highs and lows. Okay. So, so how well of a correlation have you guys found? I mean, what what are some of the case studies you've seen and some of the results you're seeing from these, uh, specifically this East Asia rule first, then we'll kind of dabble into the other one. Well, I'll be honest uh, with the East Asia rule. We're still trying to get other correlation points. Uh, we're dab dabbing into that uh, since our focus from the beginning was the Bering Sea rule. And I've also um, talked with the research team. In fact, they make fun of me all the time because I keep on having more research papers pop into my head about what we can do next. <laughs> and we, um, the since we've got the Seoul and Nashville correlation set forth. Um, I don't have any case studies with the East Asia rule, and I apologize for that because that's one of our next steps, if you will. Well, Joe, don't be modest. I thought we did have some nice pictures from our papers. Well, we did have, Doc, we did have the, um, in the case studies too, um, maybe I just misunderstood the question. Uh, the, in our case, our second paper, case studies two from the 40th, we do have where I selected uh, multiple analog sets of comparing major storms, um, the Bering Sea rule depiction, the East Asia rule depiction, and the results for the um, eastern United States. Um, multiple severe, and again, you know, I'm at work, so I can't look this up. Uh, multiple severe weather outbreaks were utilized in that case studies too paper, uh, multiple um, cold weather outbreaks, and along with heat waves. We've had the ability to do all of that. We've been able to predict cold waves, Arctic blast, heat waves uh, during the summer. Um, you know, the heat waves of 2012, perfect example in that regards. And then multiple uh, severe weather outbreaks. Um, Super Tuesday, uh, the April 28th of 2014, off the top of my head, I think. That's right. And uh, quite a few others. Uh, like I said, I'm at, since I'm at work, I can't pull them up or anything. But, you know, those are in the second paper. So there's a lot of potential relations here to – you know, forecasting and perhaps warning about weather events in a long-term basis. When we talk about preparedness and stuff, I mean, there's a lot of potential with these kind of rules you guys are, are looking into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it would give additional guidance, uh, perhaps like uh, the 2011 severe weather event that affected most of the South, the model's had keyed in on that about five days in advance. And they could use that to say, oh, we should be paying attention to this. I think that's the utility because it, it, it won't, of course, it won't be able to 
hit the exact location and timing, but it can give you an idea that something's coming. We, and that so, also, real quick, that was also part of our case studies paper in the second one. Okay. So just to make sure I'm understanding this, and hopefully our viewers are as well. So let's say we see a potential setup that shows, or let me put it this way. A lot of times on the weather models, we'll see winter storms in the southeast, you know, seven to 10 days, sometimes longer out range. Is, could there be any skill in using some of these methods to try and say whether the environment is favorable for a low to form off the southeast coast or something like that? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, during um, the hurricane season, I don't know if you all follow Cranky Weather Guy on Twitter, um, but he, on multiple occasions, showed us how the BSR, for instance, uh, predicted the um, formation of the trough that steered away, I think it was Michael, just in, and then a couple others also just in time, um, there's been other uh, instances where utilizing the BSR and the EAR that, you know, depending on where that trough lines up or a ridge lines up, will depict if the southeast coast or if the Gulf Coast also, we've had those situations happen that we've seen, will get hit by a hurricane. But um, like for instance, this winter, uh, I, the BSR predicted the uh, icing event earlier um, in January, predicted the, um, oh geez, what was it, January uh, 7th storm that hit the Northeast and, you know, we're in line with uh, another one come February 8th through the 10th, which also has a severe weather aspect for the South that we predicted, um, as I was telling you earlier, January, beginning of January, first three days, there was a severe weather event along the Gulf Coast. And I warned a former coworker of mine that was thinking about going to Florida. And I told him, you know, you're driving an RV, you might want to be careful, you know, because you know, you're going to have possibly three days of severe weather, according to what I'm seeing. So, so when we're looking at these maps, uh, I'm checking out your website, uh, organicforecasting.com. So when we're talking about, uh, I guess, verifying the BSR rule, what do you guys look for in verification? Is it more so where some of the features are located or kind of just the overall impact that those systems provided? Oh, both. Both. In fact, uh, we also have, if you go to the forecast charts link on the left, you'll see a PR in parentheses, and that is our uh, correlation of the BSR. So, and right now I'm having Josh run an average of the correlation for each uh, series, uh, Southwest, Mountain, Great Lakes, Northeast, and uh, Central. So, like, for instance, uh, there's been times that the BSR was m maybe 300 miles off of what was actually what happened 18 days later when it came to a surface low pressure. So, I mean, 18 days warning that you're, you know, within 300 miles, you know, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, 300 miles to the common person may seem like a, a long 
way, but you know, we are talking about almost what, two and a half weeks of lead time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and the real value in uh, the work that we're doing here, uh, we have found comes in uh, looking at more extreme events. So one of the things we looked at for verification was the ability to pick up events that were unusual or about two standard deviations of blow, below or above the mean. So something that's quite rare, uh, not too typically usual. Because if you look at climatology, climatology is very difficult to beat when you're dealing with long-range predictions and uh, long-range forecasting. And uh, again, it, it's just the idea that if you have a fairly energetic system in the Western or Central Pacific, if, if it continues to move uh, toward our region, and doesn't dissipate that energy too terribly much, we'll have a pretty energetic event in our region. Yeah, that's a good point, Anthony. Uh, I've watched you know, several storms over, over the last several years that really, uh, really was a strong injection into the North Pacific jet. And you got these monster storms like High End and Tip. Uh, I think Nuri was one that set or tied a record in the Bering Sea, if I'm not mistaken. But these storms, it pulled straight up from, especially in the Sea of Japan, northward, and they get pulled right into the North Pacific jet, otherwise known as NPJ. And it just, boy, it really does have a surge of energy. Nuri, I think, was a super typhoon that uh, bombed out again in the Bering Sea. Talk a little bit about that and how that transfers from one area over in um, the Asian area all the way into the Bering Sea. And then as a possible Rossby waving to the United States. So give us, give us like a little bit of a, a scenario. Oh yeah, yeah. What happened with, uh, uh, with Nuri is, is yes, like you said, it bombed out and was a record low pressure. And what that does of course is uh, develop a very strong trough in the jet stream. And that led to an event called uh, a, a very strong ridging event, uh, and, and it became a blocking type event, the type, kind of thing that I study. And so you've got this amplification of the jet stream in the Pacific, and naturally that's going to amplify the, the, uh, the wave pattern in the downstream side of this blocking event. And so that allows uh, colder air in the Arctic to penetrate down into the USA. So basically what you're saying is, uh, and, and what would be the success rate at guessing when that's going to happen? If you have a super typhoon in the Western Pacific that gets pulled to the north very quickly, it's wrapped into the jet, um, can you almost bet a certain percentage that that is probably likely going to have uh, a winter effect in the United States uh, during the wintertime months? Oh, yes, yes. And uh, that event was a very good example of how that happens, especially early in the year. But of course, as uh, Joe was pointing out earlier, it doesn't have to be a typhoon. It could be an extra tropical cyclone that'll do the same thing. Right. Yeah, definitely extra tropical, kind of like the Pacific cyclone we're seeing now, the, the one that's off the coast that's bringing California all the much needed rain. Um, I'm switch gears just a little bit because uh, I know we're, we're getting about 8.40 p.m., so I wanted to touch on this. How much is the El Nino oscillation weighed into what you guys do? I mean, you're weighing in the PDO, the MJO. 
the ONI index, how, how does that factor into uh, what your forecasting efforts are? That's a part of our uh, graduation, if you will, like I was stating earlier about one of the things that, you know, the guys give me uh, a lot of flack about regarding, you know, for further research papers. You know, I want to dig deeper into uh, the INSO uh, on uh, its effects because um, part of our other research, which is the reoccurring Rosby wave train, does have... Um, an impact regarding Indian monsoons and the uh, convection as it relates to also, uh, uh, in, uh, excuse me, um, Indonesia, uh, that area. And, you know, one can look into that as MJO and ENSO uh, both combined because of the tropical forcing and how that impacts the jet stream in the uh, subtropics and also along the uh, farther north into our area. So Anthony, yeah, Joe, can you, that's, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah, Joe, that's, a, that's a, an exciting area to go into next because we know that uh, El Nino, La Nina has a huge impact on the weather. Uh, of North America, especially the northern tier of states and the southern tier of states. And uh, we've studied that for the uh, central United States, or I've studied that with another graduate student. And we looked at the probability of extreme monthly temperatures for the Midwest. And believe it or not, there's more of a tendency for that in El Nino years. And so Joe's Bering Sea Rule will probably uh, uh, help us to see why that is with uh, with our El Nino La Nina research. So, okay. So, blocking patterns for you, Anthony. What do you see that these super typhoons, uh, the teleconnection with these Western Pacific storms? What type of blocking patterns do you typically see in the United States as a result of the larger injections into the jet stream? Do you see uh, a split block? Do you see omega blocks? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we see those those kind of blocking events uh, all the time with these uh, cyclones. Uh, earlier research that I've done shows that the stronger the cyclone is, the more likely it is you'll get a blocking event, in the, especially in the Pacific region. And you will see all of these configurations, um, wh whether it'll be one type or another predominantly. Uh, just depends on what the flow looks like at that time. But you will see these things predominantly over the uh, Pacific Ocean region. And, and when you get a lot of them occurring in the East Pacific uh, specifically, that's when we get our colder weather in the central USA. Now blocking doesn't occur that often over, over North America itself. And it's, the, and it's actually, it turns out that the lack of blocking in the Pacific allows for ridging over the United States and that'll correlate more with our warm events, uh, the lack of blocking. So I'm, I'm being in the Southeast region, I'm just always fascinated with the Bermuda High, you know, the Bermuda Ridge, um, which is what we've been seeing a lot the last few weeks. What, does that correlate with anything that's happening in the NPJ at this moment? Well, that's going to correlate more with what's happening in the Atlantic region. 
but the but the Pacific and the Atlantic will relate to each other because uh, right now we've been in a very uh, very zonal pattern, a very east to west type pattern, and of course that's not allowing for the uh, penetration of the cold air masses that we'd like to see if you're a fan of winter weather. But uh, uh, when the flow is a little more wavy, and you have blocking and both hemisphere and both the Pacific and the Atlantic, then it's Katie bar the doors in the central USA. All right, I think Ricky had a question. Yeah, and uh, one question kind of as we get close to nine o'clock here is, my phone buzzes obsessively, uh, is well, what's your future with this? Where do you see this kind of going in terms of research? Oh, wow. Well, from my perspective, uh, I see us expanding into, I don't know if you notice the SOI Delta, which is Southern Oscillation Index. I want to perform more research in that. And the reason why is because we've seen per that section of the website that when there's a volatility in the daily SOI index that you will find a very volatile pattern in the East United States 20 days later. Uh, another section that I want to go into is I want to create another index for the area, if you basically flip the SOI into the northern hemisphere, I want to create an index for that because that will then uh, verify and validate the East Asia rule on a different level also. Um, of course, expand our East Asia rule research. And lastly, our reoccurring Rosby wave train research. Finally, peer review, putting all of it together. Uh, one of my favorite sayings on AccuWeather forums is it's all related. That's true. That's true. In the immediate future, yeah, we want to get uh, publication out the door and maybe uh, apply for some funding for some uh, for some hardcore research. So the, these are the plans for the uh, immediate future. Okay. And uh, I noticed you guys have um, on the organic forecasting side a GoFundMe account trying to raise a little bit of funds for people who may be interested in helping you spread this message. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, back, back when I first started that, what happened was is, um, you know, and as of now, you know, this is my passion. So, you know, all of the, my time and, you know, the money that's required for us to go to various uh, conferences and speak, that was to help pay for the conferences because, you know, I, I don't have a degree in meteorology and, you know, I generally have just your standard full-time jobs so it was very difficult for me to pay for uh, the fees that are required to attend the conferences and that's main, mainly what that was for okay so if you guys want to help them out their uh, organicforecasting.com site has a, a link to that and speaking from someone who's been to nwa conferences been to ams conferences he's not kidding some of the fees are, are pretty high up there for some of these conferences to go to and membership. $600 for the AMS in New Orleans for a non-member, non-meteorologist. Yep. 
It's almost somewhat excessive sometimes, but that's a topic for another show on another day. All right, so that's a uh, final question from me, and then I'll toss it back to Scotty. And if you guys have any other questions, feel free to jump in. But uh, for someone who's interested in doing a lot of teleconnection research or learning more about teleconnections, learning more about some of these rules you guys have come up, what's some of the good ways they could go about learning that? Or how did you get your interest in it? How did you learn about a lot of this stuff? In all honesty, my experience came from the AccuWeather forums. And uh, in fact, just last week, we had a, a little discussion how a lot of the now meteorologists that talk in the forums started as kids and through learning from where everybody else talks about the weather and the, the basics, you know, teleconnection forecasting. Um, also the uh you know general models how to discern what the models are showing instead of just you know posting the eye candy clown maps of the snowfall for a certain area and you know it it's a lot about discussion and also you know the ams has a ton of papers that you can glean almost you know give yourself a migraine from reading because, you know, it's so full of information. You know, it took me, think you know, the better part of three years of learning everything that I learned. And I'm still learning. You, you, you never stop learning in meteorology. Uh, you know, anyone, any meteorologist will tell you that, you know, there's always going to be that one situation that smoked them, if you will, and woke them up and saying, you know, brought them back down to earth on how they don't know exactly what's going to happen. Perfect example was here in um, uh, central Missouri, December 17th, we had a light ice glaze situation where it was forecasted to warm up enough that the drizzle, freezing drizzle would melt. Well, it never did. And I remember receiving text messages from the school bus system that the kids at one o'clock in the morning, all of them were finally home. Yeah, yeah, that was an event that was not well forecast. But I'll tell you that if you want to get something that's uh, easy to digest, go to the Climate Prediction Center's website. They have a lot on the uh, Pacific North America pattern, which is part of what involves Bering Sea and Typhoon Rule. They also have a lot of good information about El Nino and even the North Atlantic Oscillation, the uh, Climate Prediction Center, and uh, they they do a good job. Cool. Yeah, and so uh, you guys use NCAR and uh, CPC, is that correct? Yeah, in fact, yep. the, the Wave 5 uh, pattern that NCAR found was huge because at the same time, I was studying the BSR and it showed um, in the map from the NCAR website showing the wave five pattern. It had a high pressure over the Bering Sea and it was talking about 20 days later, there was a heat wave in the United States. And I'll never forget while I was in Denver, the NCAR people were there since they were so close. And I about, you know, I was so excited and I told them, look, you know, what you did at the same time was huge for me because it basically validated what all of my research was doing. 
So just all clicked at one time. That's pretty neat. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. And if and if people want to look at some of what Joe does, uh, they could go to the uh, our research group website, which is just weather.missouri.edu slash gcc and joe's papers will show up under uh, climate and climate variability okay very cool okay so yeah the um i'm looking forward to seeing the next inso discussion i always like to keep up with that but um since we're getting kind of close to the hour i, I want to go i want to take this back a little bit what got you interested in weather to begin with i'll start with you joe oh i was just you know your standard kid that would hang out during thunderstorms and watch the storms come through or during a uh, winter weather events, you know, sit there and watch the snowfall, you know, just like any other young person that really developed a passion for it. Yeah. Being here in the Southeast winter weather and hurricanes are our, uh, our big thing. So that's what kind of got me involved when I was very young as well. How about you, Anthony? Well, that seems to be a common theme with meteorologists, that, that was storms at a very young age, and I'm no different. Uh, the April 3rd, 1974 outbreak is what caught my attention. I, I grew up in upstate New York, and severe weather, uh, the severe weather that was going on with that event was big news, and uh, I just kind of wondered what made it tick. All right, guys. Well, we're uh, approaching the nine o'clock hour. I do have one quick question, and then uh, we'll kind of end the show. Uh, who are, in the weather world? You know, there are people who like severe weather, and they kind of gravitate to one another. There's people who like winter weather; they kind of gravitate to one another. Who are some of the guys that you or, or gals that that you guys associate with? Kind of bounce ideas off of one. One to my mind comes uh, Joe Bastardi. I, I watch his. Um, atmospheric Avenger uh, almost every day uh, as he looks, you know, throughout the, the next few weeks. So who are some of the, the people that you guys kind of bounce ideas off of and say, hey, did you notice this or, or, or notice that as you continue to study uh, the teleconnections? Um, I'll be honest, you know, since only a couple people have uh, latched on to my rule. I talked to Mark Jarvis at the National Weather Service in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he's also, in fact, in his uh, Twitter account, it says, fan of organic forecasting. Um, I also, <laughs> cool. yeah, and that's, when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get a hold of this guy. Um, a couple other uh National Weather Service meteorologist out of St. Louis, Kansas City, and uh, because I've done AMS uh, talks with both. Um, another one is, you know, Jeremy Nelson has latched on to the Bering Sea rule. He's now in uh, uh, Georgia, I think, off the top of my head. He used to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, Michael Clark out of Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, I taught him the basics of the BSR and organic forecasting. Let's um, here off the top of my head. Uh, Ed Valley, from, formerly of AccuWeather, now of BAM Weather. Um, but, um, and Scott Sable out of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, 
But again, since not that many people catch on, have caught on to the Bering Sea rule, uh, we're kind of like a niche, if you will. And, you know, and I don't really, you know, discuss much about it. You know, cranky weather guy, you know, him and I, he, I'm on his stormhamster.com uh, website. If you guys want to find links, you need to go there. He's got every single link known to man when it comes to weather. In fact, I, there's times I'm just in awe about all of the it's information overload. That's all I got to say. Well, while you're talking about, it, I went to follow Cranky Weatherman on Twitter, so I'm looking forward to his <laughs> post. <laughs> like yeah. I said, StormHamster.com, and you'll see all of his links available. Is it kind of like Mike's Mike's weather page? He's got uh, some <laughs> oh. unbelievable amount there. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest. It probably makes Mike's look like you know minuscule. I mean, he's got one, two, three. You know, I think ten groupings with hundreds. Some of them have hundreds of links when it comes to the National Weather Service, as an example. Yeah, I've uh, I've uh, bounced some things off of Joe Bastardi. He, I like some of his discussions and. Uh, you know the weather service we've got colleagues in the weather service as joe said and then there's a, a broadcaster in uh, in uh, kansas city gary lezak that that uh, we've bounced ideas off of before so so it is a pretty small group uh, and th and that's the same thing with atmospheric blocking that's an even smaller group <laughs> Well, I'll have to join that group because I'm a big fan. Go ahead, Scotty. I was going to say, no, go ahead. I was, I was going to kind of close this up then. Oh, no. I was just saying I'm, I'm a big fan of blocking patterns myself. I'd like to see what's coming. All right, guys. Well, I do want to let you uh, have the chance to promote how our, our followers can follow you either on Facebook or Twitter or uh, whatever you guys uh, like best. So, um, Anthony, I'll start with you, and then we'll let Joe uh, give out his stuff. Well, you can follow me on Facebook. I don't do a lot of weather posting there, but the uh, the most of our research is on that page I gave out earlier, and I'll do it again, uh, weather.missouri.edu slash GCC. That's the uh, Global Climate Change Group, and we've got a lot of stuff on there also about climate variability. So, Awesome. And Joe? Yeah, I've got actually two Twitter accounts. Um, before I joined KOPN FM Radio here in uh, Columbia, Missouri, I had a Twitter and Facebook group called Tri-States Weather. Um, and then once I started doing long-range forecasting for uh, KOPN, I developed a KOPN FM Radio WX Twitter account. And... You know, Facebook, um, I've got my Tri-States Weather um, group on Facebook, and then also, of course, the Twitter. But more importantly, you know, if you want to follow what we're doing on the website, it's we've got two separate websites. Blog.organicforecasting.com is where I'll put in um, various uh, tidbits of information. Uh, Josh, every once in a while, will explain his reoccurring Rosby wave train research. And then the actual data is on organicforecasting.com. And there, it's an awesome resource because when it comes to the East Asia rule and the 
typhoon, I mean, sorry, in the Bering Sea rule along with the reoccurring Rosby wave train, you can actually look at our archived uh, pictures from uh, various uh, situations and uh, when we first started doing those overlays. I'm looking here at December and it looks like you're, you're verifying some forecasts there. Yep. Yeah, and that's another thing you'll have to understand is uh, a lot of times my sarcasm will come out uh, pretty strongly in my blog. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a good sense of humor. Well, Joe, we, uh, in your radio, um, you do the weather for the radio station there. That might be a future show we can have you back on and kind of the when people think about weather, you know, they think of National Weather Service or, or TV meteorologist, maybe it'd be a good time to maybe have you back on and kind of explain the process of how you do the weather for the radio station sometime. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, speaking of uh, shows coming up, here is our schedule. Next week will be show number 146. As uh, Speaking of Nashville, Tennessee, earlier uh, in the show, uh, Chrissy Hurley, she is the warning coordinator meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Nashville. Uh, she'll be joining us next week. And then the week after that, we have Tim Schmidt on. Uh, going to be talking about Gozar or Go16 now um, as it's finally up. And uh, we've got, finally got some images from uh, Go16. And then we wrap out the uh, wrap up the month of February with uh, John Valeski out of Louisville, Kentucky, as we uh, have a kind of a fun topic talking about weather folklore. So um, that's what the uh, schedule looks like for the next uh, few weeks as we uh, wrap up or as we go into February. And then in March, uh, we have the National Weather Podcast Awareness Month. Uh, still working on the schedule with that, um, with the, the first and the 29th, hopefully having uh, a few representatives from different weather podcasts coming on the show. Um, March the 8th, we have, uh, I don't have the schedule from me, we have Allison House, I think it's Ryan Hickman uh, going to be joining us, and then uh, Shay has lined up two great guests, uh, uh, the 15th and the 22nd, as we uh, talk about lightning and then kind of the coastal hazards and how the uh, the coastline is ever-changing, so uh fun couple of months here for the Carolina Weather Group, so we do encourage you guys to uh, continue watching, and we put a post out a couple of nights ago. We'd like to have your suggestions as well. If you have any uh, topics you'd like to discuss or any guests you'd like for us to reach out to, uh, we'd love to take those uh, suggestions as well as we plan into April and May and throughout uh, the rest of the year. So uh, looking forward to uh, to having Chrissy on with us next week, and a uh, great show tonight, Shay. Um, really uh, a lot of people, when they think of forecasting weather, they think of the next two or three, four or five days. They don't think long-term two to three weeks out. So, uh, yeah, no, no, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we uh, constantly, just like with Anthony, you know, he's, he's expert in blocking patterns. And that's huge. That, that's a, a major pattern shift uh, that we can see some trends coming up in the future. You may not be able to get exact temperatures. Uh, another thing that, that, uh, these guys use Anthony and Joe uses the underground network. So I mean, that's a heavily reliable source of information for say temperatures uh, or even rainfall amounts and for some of the weather stations. But uh, you know, you, you you'd rely on a lot of instrumentation to get you some information. But then when you start to see upper air patterns, mid mid level air patterns, uh, that can give you sort of a, a forecast uh, well ahead of time. So it's always good to stay ahead of the game as a forecaster. That's what a lot of people don't understand is that there's a lot of preparation time. We look two to four weeks out at all times, and then we get into our micrometeorology. So that's how it, that's how it is. 
That is true. So uh, thanks for watching tonight, uh, the Carolina Weather Group. We look forward to having you on next week uh, as we have Chrissy Hurley on from the National Weather Service in Nashville. So you guys have a great week. Enjoy uh, your weekend. Don't eat too much food on Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, enjoy the nice weather. And uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.